This episode of New Politics was recorded on September 1, 2020, and produced on the land of the Wangal people. Welcome to the New Politics Podcast, providing analysis and opinion on Australian politics and filling in all the gaps left behind by the mainstream media. In this episode, the return of federal parliament and the crisis in aged care homes, the continuing Australian border wars, and more China bashing, this time it's the Belt and Road Initiative. I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, Master of Redundancy, co-host of New Politics Australia. Federal Parliament is back and it's business as usual. The Federal Government is facing pressure for mismanagement in key policy areas and they're calling on every political trick in the book to deflect from the problems they're facing. There's a wide range of ongoing problems in the aged care sector across Australia. The Minister, Richard Colbeck, is under severe pressure for his negligence in this portfolio, attempting to avoid scrutiny at every opportunity, even running out from the Senate when he was being questioned about his performance. There was speculation that Labor would be able to force the resignation of Richard Colbeck, but by the end of the sitting week, there was barely a scratch left on the government. Accepting responsibility for ministers has changed over the past few decades, but what does a poorly performing minister have to do to lose his job? I think the first thing you have to be is female. Bridget McKenzie finally went. And she should have gone. I'm not saying that it was a terrible injustice that she resigned. And she only resigned from the ministry. She's still head of government business in the Senate and chair of committees. And for what she had clearly done, it was by no means enough. Colbeck, of course, in terms of ministerial responsibility, has failed horribly. How many residents of aged care facilities funded and regulated by the Australian government have passed away from COVID-19? I'll just have to look up my latest report, Chair. That might take me a moment. Minister, you weren't aware of that number? I was just trying to find my latest SIPRIP, Chair. I, I, um, it wasn't in the frontline details of those figures. I have got the details. I just couldn't find it. Uh, a hand, I'm sorry. Minister, how many residents of aged care facilities funded and regulated by the Australian Government have COVID-19 today? Uh, again, Senator, I don't have the report with the actual detail in front of me. I'll have to ask um, Minister, Ms. Oh. I mean, you've just, you haven't, you don't know how many people have passed Ch away. You're now telling me you don't know how many people have the infection. Chair, You're the Minister for no, Aged Care. There's a I'm, serious... looking for, I'm looking for the report on my IT system, it, and I... But it's not I front of mind for you as Minister for Aged Care? I mean, the Senator, numbers, I mean, they're pretty important details as we're going through this uh, pandemic and the heartbreaking scenes in Victoria. I, I'm just struggling to believe that you are not aware of these details. He didn't have the numbers he needed to hand. He couldn't answer the questions. Now, I'll be fair, if he'd read the numbers from a notepad, a lot of people would have said, oh, he should have known them off the top of his head. I don't think that's completely fair all the time. He had clearly not done any preparation work. He had clearly not taken any duty of care in his ministry. He had clearly failed under traditional Westminster protocols. Most of them have. When your best performing minister is probably Simon Birmingham, we're not looking at one of the legendary cabinets of the Australian political system. We're really not. 
And this is where I think, to just go off the topic a little bit, we should be angry. The Liberal Party has put in deliberately incapable, inappropriate people who are there to really not do anything so that the vacuum is filled by vested interests, big business, Business Council of Australia, Minerals Council of Australia, the IPA. They do nothing. And these groups come in and just take everything. It's the fault of the Liberal Party for allowing this to happen. It's the fault of the Australian Parliament for not expecting a higher standard. And it's the fault of the Australian people for continually voting these people in. We have to demand a much, much higher standard. And if they don't like it, bad luck. Let's see if they can get jobs elsewhere. I doubt it. Well, it's also that issue about ministerial responsibility. And for sure, just because a minister can't remember a particular number, well, that in itself shouldn't be a hanging offence. But although you'd expect that in this situation this is quite an important issue to understand or know the actual number of people that had died in aged care nursing homes and that's a key issue. Ministers should be competent in their actions and their behaviour but they should also be seen to be competent as well and that's the impression that Richard Colbeck gave out that he didn't know much about his sector and we get back to that issue not understanding or not being able to recall a particular number in a Senate estimate hearing that shouldn't be a hanging offence in itself. No. But in the day when journalism is always looking for the gotcha moment, this was the key gotcha moment, and he, he was caught out severely. Ministers are advised by the public service. So either the public service wasn't advising him, and that's not the impression that I'm getting, or he wasn't listening, which is the impression I was getting. Of course, when Labor is in government, your agriculture minister may not be a country Labor member because of the way these things often fall down, and hence know nothing about farming. <laughs> but the public service advises, and that advice is not just what policy is possible, but what you need to know before you start shaping policy. You know, a defence minister may have had no experience in the defence forces. The education may not have been a teacher or public servant. That doesn't matter. Colbeck, I think, showed utter contempt for the public service and the advice that was available to him that he clearly wasn't listening to. Governments always have to go through the process of actually managing the events that are happening within a particular portfolio. But they have to, again, it gets back to what I mentioned before, that they do have to be seen to be acting responsibly in that portfolio. There's one key terminology that has been developed and it's been appearing quite often over the past few weeks and that's that concept of shared responsibility and we've dealt with this in a few of our previous podcast episodes but whenever this federal government has a problem they always talk about it being a shared responsibility either they deflect it completely or talk about it being someone else's problem there's a limit to how far this idea of the shared responsibility can go, but I guess that's what the federal government is trying to do at this stage, is not taking on the responsibility for those problems, trying to give that problem over to someone else. This is an issue that will end up coming back to haunt this government if they're not taking on responsibility for these particular actions. And during the last sitting week, there, there has been some agreement that Labor now has so much material that they can work with to use against this federal government politically. Aged care is a key social policy issue that they can use to focus on government mismanagement and incompetence. Now is the time for Labor to start scoring some serious political points and gaining some political traction. Last week in Parliament, it was hard to know whether this was the case or not, but the most recent news poll that came out last night, for what it's worth, 
has shown a tightening of the two-party preferred vote, and it's 50-50 for both parties at the moment. Anthony Albanese, he has released an eight-point plan for aged care, including minimum staffing levels, better training and infection control, higher levels of funding. But based on his previous behaviour, we can assume that Scott Morrison will take on all of these ideas, implement them, claim that they were his ideas all along, and blame Labor for not having a, a plan. What what else can Labor do in this sort of situation? Yeah, I don't know. Morrison is helped by a very soft mainstream press. Stuff that a real press would relish in terms of stories gets ignored. Stuff that really top-notch political journalists would be all over gets buried. And I'll be fair, we do have some top-notch political journalists who do do this stuff, but they don't get the traction. It's killed at a higher level or it's repressed at a higher level. Of course... At the inevitable election where the Liberal Party loses, the same newspapers will be saying, oh, it was all our work. I think, too, social media is starting to make inroads. I don't think as many inroads as its supporters say it is. It can become a bit of a bubble. But I think slowly the tide turns. And I think things in aged care, which affects people directly... It's one thing to get the submarine contracts wrong. That affects people, sure, but it doesn't affect many people. What it does affect is people who are um, working in defence and some subsidiary industries. It's terrible, don't get me wrong, but aged care. Nearly every family in Australia has someone who needs to go into aged care. And a government whose overriding philosophy is this American billionaire idea of less government is good and government shouldn't do anything and the market will sort it out. And COVID has shown the failure and the non-redeemed failure, as in there's been no good points of this. Of the 600 deaths from COVID in Australia, 400 have been in nursing homes. That's an incredible statistic in terms of its percentage. I suspect the next level of argument will be, oh, we have very low levels of infection in this country and these are very small numbers. This is true. But those 401 deaths, most of them could have been easily avoided by proper oversight, proper policy, not the plan to have a plan to make a plan that the government came out with eventually. They literally crossed out the word guideline and put plan and thought that nobody would notice. Well, not many people have been calling out for the resignation of Richard Colbeck. If you compare the attitudes of the business community and the mainstream media that have been incessantly calling for the resignation of Daniel Andrews, the Premier of Victoria, hasn't had the same reaction for Richard Colbeck. And I'd, I'd say that his performance has been quite inept. I'm not one of those people that is calling out for the resignation of Richard Colbeck. I'd much rather have a situation where he stays in the position and faces up to the music and at least has some sort of attempt to resolve the issues. And then if he's not able to resolve the issues, now it's not a case where he's just been a poorly performing minister over the past couple of weeks or hasn't been able to stand up in Senate estimate committees and recite a particular number. He's been quite an incompetent minister for some time. So the question is, well, why 
is he in there in the first place? And he is a senator from Tasmania. He's not up for re-election at the next federal election, whenever that is, unless it's a double dissolution election. But he's been a poorly performing minister for some time. So it's not a question of whether he stays or, or goes. Like, what difference would it make to the people that are, or the families that, that have got relatives that are dying in aged care right here, right now? It's a question of why was he there in the first place? He's a serial underperformer and he shouldn't have been there in the first place. Exactly. And it goes back. They want parliament to be a vacuum, an intellectual vacuum, because politics abhors a vacuum like nature. And if you don't have politicians of vision, of competence, of probity, you can do what you like if you can get into the system. In New South Wales, and I'm sorry to all our out-of-state listeners who keep me hearing on banging on about New South Wales, but I get a lot of news about New South Wales being based here. Gladys Berejiklian did a press conference with the CEO of the Australian Hoteliers Association. Just gobsmackingly appalling because the right-wing parties in Australia, and I think we can say that there are members of the Labor Party who fall into this category too, more interested in filling the seats and letting business run the show rather than doing work themselves. If you have some kind of policy, if you come in with some kind of plan, you still have to work with those interests. They have their own interests which they wish to present to Parliament. That is their right in a democracy, and that's fine. They shouldn't be running the show, though. All interests should be heard. It shouldn't be a vacuum in Parliament. And the chaos we're seeing now in New South Wales in the federal arena comes from this, probably from South Australia too, but South Australia seems to be a slightly different beast. So I'm happy to exclude South Australia. You're listening to New Policies. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud and Spotify, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. Up next, the continuing saga of the Australian border wars. This indecision's bugging me If you don't want to set me free Exactly who I'm supposed to be Don't you know which claws even fit me Well come on and let me know Should I cool it or should I blow Should I stay or should I go now Should I stay or should I go now? If I go, there will be trouble. turning into a predictable but unedifying spectacle with the federal government and other vested interests ramping up the push to open up state borders. The billionaire mining magnate, Clive Palmer, is racking up major legal losses in the courts but he's still taking his appeals to the High Court to get borders open up as soon as possible. The Liberal Party has traditionally been a firm believer in states' rights against the domination of the federal government. That history seems to have been thrown away, with Scott Morrison now claiming that Australia was designed to be a country without borders. Borders weren't intended to be a barrier to internal interactions and business. 
and he's using an entire collection of emotionally charged stories of people being denied medical care, not being able to attend funerals, not being able to see family members interstate. He's using all of these stories to get his message across. There is a precedent for border closures with many borders closing during the 1918 pandemic and 72% of the population is satisfied with the respective state government decisions to close borders until the coronavirus threat is over. Why does the federal government even consider siding with people such as Clive Palmer? To make sure that the money to the wealthy, and I mean the mega wealthy here too, keeps flowing. The thing that frightens them is that everybody realises that the economy isn't that important and in fact we can live without an economy that is set up the way it is with low taxes, rapacious capitalism running rampant. The second we know this, it's over. We already know that you don't need the corner office overlooking Sydney Harbour or the Swan River or, or, or the Yarra to be able to do your job effectively. I think we're starting to suspect that $23 million a year for the CEO is way, way too much, that the CEO can do it on a tenth or even a twentieth of that. Clive Palmer is a ratbag who they will turn on <laughs> when he's facing charges anyway, and they will turn on him the second he's no longer good political capital. You'd think Clive would realise this, and maybe he does. And, you know, good riddance to him. He's not been a terribly positive influence on Australian political life or Australian life. None of them have. I don't think he's any worse than any of the others we could name. He's certainly no better. But they side with him because it suits their purpose. For whatever reason, and the reason being the flow of money, federal government wants the borders open. They don't care about the deaths. They'll be able to blame the states for the deaths. They'll be able to blame individual people for the deaths. They'll be able to play to blame anybody but themselves for the deaths. They'll be able to blame anyone for 2,000 people in hospital, unable to work. As long as that money is flowing upwards and not downwards, they're happy. And I think that's the whole, I think that's what it gets down to. I wish it was more complex. Well, someone like Clive Palmer, he's he is a billionaire politician, if you like. Now, he actually was a politician in federal parliament for one term. He was also the National Party director in Queensland as well, so obviously understands the whole political process. But now he's probably realised that he can have more political power outside of parliament. Obviously, he's got very deep pockets, being a mining magnet. But in the West Australian newspaper, Clive Palmer is continuously advertising his case, and it's quite often it's the first two pages in the West. Australian newspaper. It's a full two-page spread and he's been doing that for several months now. That's a campaign that he's going to continue with but I'm just wondering what is the merit of this actual campaign and it's probably got nothing to do with the idea of borders opening up or Clive Palmer wanting to extend his interests in within West Australia. It's all a backhanded way of attacking the Labor Party. That's what this primarily seems to be about. You can see the contempt you had the businessman who has got special permission to go and get his yacht. Now, if he was getting it because he was going to donate it as a hospital ship or something, you'd think, okay, that's admirable. But it was a luxury yacht. Why does he need it now? Clive Palmer, I would almost bet my house on, is socially isolating, wearing masks, keeping away from people, 
travelling as little as possible. But when he travels, he's crossing borders with impunity. There's no 14 days of self-imposed quarantine in a hotel at his own expense. Well, that type of stuff's for the plebs. Kerry Stokes came over to Sydney for Anzac Day for the small celebration. He had no right. We didn't want him here. If he'd gone to the Perth one, fair enough. The argument is, well, it's just one person. But one person can do a lot of damage in these circumstances and one person can have a lot of damage done to themselves. I don't think there's enough understanding of how bad this disease is here because our numbers have been globally low. Even the 700 a day in Victoria a couple of weeks back it was on the low end of high. It was 1,500 a day and 1,000 a day in parts of America, 2,500 a day in Britain for a while there. Just because it's low doesn't mean we should be complacent. New Zealand has provided and Singapore has provided the model. Go hard, go early, make sure it's gone, open up slowly. Uh, and if it happens again, shut down again. And it's worked. Sweden being the other way where oh, we don't need to close down. And it's been a disaster. So this discussion about opening up the borders, the, the ramping up and the attacks on predominantly the Labor governments in those respective state jurisdictions, it's obvious that this is all a diversion from all of the other problems that the federal government is happening. But we do have to look at the merits of the cases that they're putting forward. And I've noticed that historically, whenever there's a federal Labor government, the Liberal Party will always promote the idea of state rights, that the rights of the states and territories are as important as the national rights of the federal government. Conversely, when the Liberal Party is in federal government, it's the reverse sort of situation. They're not so concerned about state rights. They talk about diminishing the borders, the federal government taking more responsibilities at the expense of the respective state governments. So we just have to see this within the political prism, I guess, that this is all about politics, it's all about diversions, and this is just an extension of how this federal government behaves. It's all about political opportunism. It looks at, rather than taking on responsibility for particular actions, it looks for issues that can divert from whatever problems they're having. It looks at issues which are more divisive than anything else. I think the other thing is that the vast majority of, not all, but most liberal politicians were failed student politicians at uni, mostly running for the student union and not getting elected. Some did get elected, of course, but mostly they didn't. And they learnt their politics there, but they learnt the wrong part. They'd never learnt the art of compromise. They never learnt the art of getting things done. They learnt the art of fighting to win. We have this now at a federal level. It's one thing for the young and the student, you know, the young parties, the young liberals, the young labor. It's one thing for them to muck around and be silly and immature. It's another thing for it to be in federal parliament. And that's what we have. And you see it in the press, people like Adam Crichton, the editor of the finance editor of The Australian, Andrew Bolt, Miranda Devine, who don't present arguments, just abuse. And I know that the Bolt fans will say, oh, he's forever presenting arguments. The facts are often wrong or distorted. Long-time listeners of this podcast will know we love facts here. We look at facts, we analyse them. If we're wrong, correct us. But they've given up that type of argument because they've never learned it. And so having gone into parliament, that's all they know how to do. Treat everybody like student politicians and call each other names and bring up ridiculous semantic arguments. 
Well, people, journalists in the media, politicians, they can have their firmly held beliefs, but this whole idea of winning at all costs, it leaves everyone behind. Everyone loses when there's a win-at-all-cost approach to politics. And I guess one example of that is that sad case recently where there was a woman and her family from Ballina in New South Wales. She lost one of her twin babies after she was mistakenly told by a doctor she couldn't go to a nearby Queensland hospital, which is just on the other side of the border. She had to go into... New South Wales Hospital in Sydney. So that was the wrong advice. Now, unfortunately, she lost one of her twin babies. She did keep the other one. So that's a good news story. Instead of focusing on the actuality or the facts of what happened, the Liberals started blaming the Queensland Labor Party, even though their policy is that people seeking emergency care are permitted to enter the Queensland border. There's absolutely no problem at all about that. But the Federal Liberal Party, they started ramping up all the pressure on the Queensland Labor Party. Scott Morrison is now asking questions, whatever that means. So again, it's another level of political opportunism. It's another level of uh, winning at all costs. And as I, as I said, whenever there's a political party that wants to win at all costs, everyone else loses out. All cost is all cost. The notion of the Pyrrhic victory where you win, but it's at such a devastating cost, it's, it wasn't worth winning. And I think that's the only victory they know how to have. Scott Morrison's reputation is destroyed. I don't think it was ever terribly good to be with, but Prime Minister can make your reputation. Tony Abbott, it was basically almost universal laughter when it was announced that he was going to be Britain's Brexit trade negotiator. He had a few staunch defenders in the media, but they shut up very quickly. The minister in charge went to great pains to say that no official announcement had been made yet, and I'm guessing that he'll be quietly removed from consideration. And yeah, Tony Abbott was probably the most obvious, certainly the first of win at all cost. Now, you could point to ex-head kickers like Paul Keating and even John Howard. But they were able to compromise. They were able to know when to lose. They were able to work out the best solution for people without spending everything in doing it. I'm not praising either of them, particularly as great prime ministers, but they at least took the job relatively seriously. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud and Spotify, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. Up next, an international infrastructure funding program gets a good old-fashioned belting from the federal government. Belt and Road Initiative is a global infrastructure development project implemented by the Chinese government in 2013 and is considered the key foreign affairs policy of President Xi Jinping. Its primary purpose is to develop better road, rail and sea connectivity around the world and building mutual trust and understandings between nations. In 2018, the Victoria government signed a memorandum of understanding with the Chinese government to explore investment projects of mutual interest. 
but it's not a legally binding document and no projects have actually been agreed to so far and there's no guarantee that any projects in the future will be developed. It's just a memorandum of understanding. Is the Belt and Road Initiative a good idea for Australia? Here's what Scott Morrison said in June 2019. We would be mugs. <laughs> mugs, only harming our own economic interests if we were to deny our economy access to this capital. That is why we operate a non-discriminatory approach to investment screening. And investment screening is not exclusive to Australia. It's, it's, it's done by many countries, most in fact, including China. Uh, the infrastructure needs of our region are also enormous and Australia welcomes the con contribution that uh, Belt and Road Initiative can make to regional infrastructure, investment and to regional development. He did seem to think that it was a very good idea at the time, but now Scott Morrison is claiming that he never believed in the Belt and Road Initiative, never supported the Victoria government's decision, and now wants to remove the right for the states to be able to engage with Belt and Road Initiatives. Aside from the issue of needing to fact-check virtually everything Morrison says, it seems he's more intent on scoring political points against the Labor government and engaging in some China bashing that is going against Australia's national interest. What's going on here, David? We've got a government who is very much pro-America in terms of how our foreign relations should work. America first. You know, all the way with LBJ and, and John Curtin's We Turn to America even though that was to very different forms of America in a very different world. We have a, an American president, Donald Trump, who is, for reasons that haven't really been articulated, wanting a trade war with China. I presume a trade war so that he can knock China from its position of growing influence. Now, America is still, I believe, the biggest manufacturer in the world. A lot of people don't quite understand this. What America manufactures, though, are things like 747s, ocean liner ships, luxury cars, stuff that those of us who run podcasts can probably afford but choose not to. <laughs> China, however, makes a whole range of household equipment, and it makes a lot of money from that. Now, the Chinese government, of course, is a problematic government, as most governments in the world are. I speak from Australia, where we have a far from perfect government. Nonetheless, it's our biggest trading partner. I think that the powers that be would like to go back to trading with England, particularly now that Britain is in dire need of trading partners. I think they'd like to trade with America. I think they'd like to trade with South Africa. I think they'd like to trade with uh, maybe Europe, Western Europe. There may be a pattern there. I'm not going to go so far to say there is, but for those of you who look for patterns, you might see one. I think it's insanity to side with one. A lot of foreign relations, of course, is walking very fine lines between opposing allies and that they don't oppose you, but they oppose each other. A lot of foreign relations, of course, is dealing with governments whose values we may not fully agree with. Well, well, every country has got a right to choose its trading partners. There's no issue about that unless there's international sanctions or there's other aspects that are in play there. But overall, this announcement about the Belt and Road initiatives, it just seems to be another one of Morrison's bizarre backflips where he totally denies that he actually said something when he actually did. But I guess what is being overlooked here is the national interests and the inconsistency in foreign policy matters, which 
which is not a good thing for Australia. Just backtracking a little bit, in 2015, the country Liberal Party in the Northern Territory, they established a 99-year lease of the Port of Darwin to a company with close links to the Chinese Communist Party. Now, I did look that up, and the deal is worth $506 million for those 99 years, which sounds like a lot of money, but it's actually only $5 million per Nothing. per year, and that's, that's quite a cheap deal. And it also landed the former Liberal Minister, Andrew Robb, with the job with that particular company worth $800,000 per year. That, and he actually took that on while he was still in Parliament. If Morrison was serious about his concerns about the Belt and Road Initiative, he'd cancel the Port of Darwin lease. He's more concerned about petty party-based politics and creating political problems for the Labor Party at a time when he should be focused on managing the coronavirus and looking after the national interest. And governments do need to be careful about the international reach of the Chinese government and the influence in key regions around the world. But we can't have a situation where one program is deemed to be in the national interest just because it's created by the Liberal Party and another one is deemed not to be in the national interest just because the Labor Party initiated it. It's not a sign of leadership and it's not in the national interest. A very senior person who was involved with the sell-off of the electricity, I, I better keep them anonymous, told me there were arguments for the sell-off of the electricity retail in New South Wales. And this person said, in the worst possible case, you can build a new electricity grid if things go pear-shaped and it falls into foreign hands because it's been sold off again and they become hostile foreign lands. It's a problem, but you can work around it. When you sell off a port, there's nothing you can do. If we were to go to a, even a proxy war with China and over 100 years, anything is possible. In 1918 or 1919, People genuinely believed that you wouldn't have any more major wars. That lasted 20 years. Anything is possible in 100. Look at the difference between 1820, 1920 and 2020. The three years are completely incompatible to each other. So 2120 will have a difference. Now, it's highly possible that we will retain very friendly relations with China over the long term and that nothing will happen. It's possible that the whole nation state system will break down. And it's possible that the great Pastafarian God will return and we'll all be uh, sent home for dinners. <laughs> Anything can happen. Selling off the port of Darwin, our, our northernmost important port, and it's a world port too, was utter stupidity. Then trying to seem like you're picking a fight with the people who own it doesn't seem to me to be the smartest thing you can do. And I don't think we've got subtle figures who will be able to walk both sides of the road, as the saying says. Well, foreign investment, that can be a good thing, but it's got to be beneficial to... Well, it has to be a good exchange both ways. And if you are going to do a good deal, well, you just extract every penny you can out of out of that government that you're selling it to or the overseas conglomerate that you might be selling it to or leasing it to. And it's just not the Liberal Party that does this, but it seems like governments of all persuasions are very happy to sell off Australian infrastructure for a song overseas. Like the $506 million deal for the Port of Darwin, that's $5 million per year over the next 99 years. $5 million in 100 years time, that will be your average salary by then. I'm hoping that the Chinese can stretch it out in Australia's best interest. <laughs> I don't expect that. I wouldn't expect that of any government, but you, you never know. It does happen from time to time. That's it for this new politics podcast. 
And just a reminder, if you offer $50 of support or more, we'll send you a copy of our new book, Divided Opinions. We don't beg, plead, beseech, or claim the end of journalism is nigh. We just keep it very simple. If you like what we do and want to support independent journalism, go to our website, newpolitics.com.au. All the details are there. And don't forget to give our program a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or any other location where you can find us. Thanks for listening in. I'm Eddie Djokovic, and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.